The proportional representation referendum details have triggered a firestorm debate. To dive into that, we'll be joined by Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. We'll continue the discussion with Premier John Horgan later in the show, and journalism professor Sean Holman will join us to finish the show off. For Camlinks Computer Center, you're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning, Shane Woodford here. Uh, welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Ballsry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters. Uh, welcome all. Good morning. Uh, guys, we're going to talk, uh, we only got you to the bottom of the hour, and so listeners are aware, we're going to focus on the proportional representation, uh, and I'm going to try and, the goal here is to sort of break it down into manageable chunks so that people can kind of understand exactly what we're talking about, which in and of itself underscores part of the problem here. Uh, we had a whole bunch of details uh, levied on Wednesday morning. Uh, and uh, first off the bat, let's talk about the ballot question. Uh, the first part of the question of a two-part question is, okay, do you want first past the post or do you want to make the change to proportional representation? Okay. Uh, the second question is, I think, where things get really problematic. It floats the three uh, recommended uh, proportional representation systems, dual member proportional, mixed member proportional, and rural urban proportional, which I note in Rob Shaw's column talking to an expert yesterday, uh, he'd never heard of that. So we have two of three systems that have never been tried before that are going to be on the ballot for the electorate, underscoring a bit of a problem, I imagine, Keith. Oh, yeah. No, I, I've uh, half seriously suggest that this thing is all set up, uh, designed to fail, uh, because uh, I think it's a mess. I think it's a, it's a confusing mumble-jumble. Uh, two systems that have never been tried before. There's no track record for, for either of them. Uh, and again, I just uh, questioned David Eby's entire approach here that uh, this is just going to confuse the electorate. It's not a simple yes or no choice on, on a specific system, as John Horgan promised uh, in the election campaign. So even I've detected on social media, even proponents of, of, of proportional representation, are question, some of them, are questioning this, that this is just a needlessly confusing uh, amalgamation of a number of assist- systems that have not been tried before, by and large. And I, I wonder whether, again, uh, this is actually going to get past the electorate because I think this is, uh, again, perhaps set up, designed to fail. And we've got six months as of today. The actual campaign begins the first of next month, so a five-month campaign. And we have a system that seems overly complicated, putting on three separate PR systems that are each in and of themselves fairly complicated. And two of them, I think, can be safely classified as experimental, Vaughn. Yeah, in fact, uh, Rob Shaw of the Sun talked to one of David Eby's hand-picked experts yesterday. These are the people that Eby picked four of them to advise him on the outreach to the public. And Shaw talked to one of the four, and he said just what you said, Shane, that uh, two of these three options are experimental. He doesn't know why Eby has chosen them. He thinks that the public needs to be told what they're actually getting, uh, including maps for how writing boundaries would change and all that, and they're not getting any of that. So EB's own panel of experts, he's being attacked over this thing. So, you know, I mean, the NDP line on this is the only people that got a problem with this are the BC Liberals, but I think there's all kinds of people out there that are going to have problems with the fairness, the transparency, and the openness of this uh, referendum. And Shannon, all three, as I mentioned, are complicated. The big question of any referendum process, and this one especially, is uh, can voters 
get their heads wrapped around them based on what is out there or what will be out there between now and November enough to make an informed ballot choice? I think sort of your, your take on that depends on your faith in people's ability and their willingness to kind of try and educate themselves. Um, I, I agree that the systems, you know, appear complicated. Um, we don't necessarily know exactly how they're going to play out. Um, but people do have time. They've got months to talk to their elected representatives who are now out of the House and will be about in their constituencies to talk to, you know, friends and family members. There are going to be two official campaigns receiving taxpayer money to either be proponents of moving to proportional representation or to be the opponent side. So there'll be material coming from them about the pros and cons. Um, Elections BC is going to provide, you know, neutral information. And, you know, as I said, there there is time. I think that there is time whether people are willing and interested in educating themselves about the systems, I don't think we're going to know that until we get to the referendum. Yeah, Jane, sure. I just want to flag one thing for, yeah. for particularly your listening audience uh, through, the, through the interior of the province. Uh, one of these proposals from EB, and one of the main proposals from EB, would reduce the number of constituencies, the standalone constituencies in the legislature by 30 to 35 constituencies. He's not telling us which constituencies he would eliminate. But given the way these systems work around the world, I can tell you that many of the reductions would occur in the north and interior. They'd just combine seats side by side, and you'd have much bigger seats. Um, the NDP holds four seats in the north and the interior. The Greens hold none. So I can see why they think this is a great idea. But one of the big questions that I think voters in the north and interior are going to have to ask themselves, and they're going to have to guess because they won't be told, is what's going to happen to my local seat? What's going to happen to my local representation? Will it be reduced? You know, uh, you know this. Some people in the north and the interior already have to cross a big river or a mountain range to get to their MLA's office. Uh, they may now have to cross two time zones to get to them. Yeah, uh, and it gets worse when you look at federal, too, but uh, that's beside the point. Um, uh, still with the question, we're going to talk about the maps and the riding issue a little bit later on, but uh, still with the question, w- one of the big issues going into this before we had details was the possible turnout, which, of course, is a bit of a speculation until we see how many people actually vote. But now we have a two-ballot question, and I wonder, if you vote no, you don't want to move away from the current first-past-the-post system, how likely are you to vote on the second question? And then you divide whoever votes on the second question by a third a third, and and then whoever the majority happens to be, uh, Keith, does, is is that math? Does it does it is there some kind of an alarming sign there that it could further sort of break down the turnout? Oh, I think it's very alarming. So let, let, let's say it's um, a sixty percent turnout, which is actually going to be pretty high. And I would think that the vote on whether or not to make the switch is going to be fairly tight because it has been in the past. But again, might be a, a 60-40, 55-45 split. So half the is already basically half the electorate isn't participating, uh, and then you take half of that total uh, out because uh, they voted to keep the the, the same the, the system we currently have. So you're left with a very small pool of voters, which are then deciding amongst three systems. And it's quite conceivable. Vaughn and I worked this out, the math out the other day. It is quite conceivable 
that under this referendum model, less than 10% of the vote, registered voters or the eligible voters, 3.2 million voters in BC, that less than 10% could ultimately make the decision on which electoral system we're going to be have, will be implementing in this province if we go the PR route. So that's that's the danger of a of a low threshold that DB has here. Unlike the past where you had to have 60%, uh, this is a this is a 50% plus one, but it's 50% plus one of a potentially small pool of voters, a quite a small pool of voters, and I think that is problematic. Shannon, let's bring you in on this. Uh, do you think that the turnout problem is sort of exacerbated by this, or in your mind is that just going to be a question mark we're going to have to wait and see? I do have some concerns around sort of the three-way split. I mean, obviously, when you're choosing between more systems, um, you're going to see people more divided if they are answering that question. When it comes to people who want to stay with the first past the post system and whether they're going to bother voting on question two, I think that's going to end up um, being a personal choice on their part. They're being given notice that they can answer uh, the second part. They can answer that second question with sort of whichever system they hate the least, if they'd rather stay with first past the post. Um, whether they choose to do so is, is kind of their own choice, as is people's decision to participate in the referendum. Hopefully turnout is high. Um, EB said that, you know, because we had this uh, supposedly fantastic turnout for the public consultation, which actually ended up being a very small percentage of eligible voters, but the Attorney General has taken that to mean that British Columbians are interested in this referendum and will be voting in it. Um, and, yeah, I, I do think that having those three systems on the ballot does, you know, it increases the chances that a small percentage of people are going to pick the eventual system should the answer to the first question be, yes, let's make a change. Uh, Vaughn, final words of this uh, on you before we head to a commercial break and pick up the discussion on the other side. There has been some suggestion from some of the critics here that maybe we should have a two-stage referendum instead of two questions on one ballot. We answer one question first. If that passes, then we go to the second one and tear apart the proportional representation thing and decide which one we're going to do in a separate referendum. Uh, do you think that, that there's sort of impetus to do that considering the, the turnout complications well, possibly? Anytime you ask to go government any of this like why didn't we have a citizens assembly or why don't we take more time why don't we you know all of that why don't we have two ballots is well there isn't enough time well what's the rush right we've had the current system for electing governments <clears throat> since we joined confederation and it's produced ndp governments on occasion including the current one uh so what's the rush well the rush is that the greens and the ndp want this done in time for what they think will be an election that will re-elect them next time. But, you know, I think the problem with the rush, we now see, Shane, why the one thing that uh, the previous government got right was asking an independent citizens' assembly to pick the system that was going to be put on the ballot and not having the politicians interfere in it. All right, let's take a quick break at Inside Politics, and we'll pick up this proportional representation discussion with Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. 
Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Shannon Waters about the proportional representation referendum that lies before us. Uh, I want to read a, a quote out of Vaughn's column. Uh, this time, no maps, not enough time to produce them, said Eby. A while back, his ministry gave the same excuse in rejecting a call for another citizen's assembly. We do not have the time. We've been given a fairly tight timeline. And then Vaughn notes the timelines were imposed by David Eby. So let's talk about the maps portion of it, and uh, that'll tie into the timeline a bit here. Uh, there has been a, a pretty large debate that has sprung up, especially on social media, about uh, the need to have maps in order so people can contextualize what they're getting into. The Premier says, hey, nope, uh, people really care more about who's on the ballot. Uh, uh, Vaughn, get you to weigh in on this first. How important is it to have the maps so people understand what they're doing? Well, I mean, we saw in the last BCSTV referendum that it helped people, particularly, as I said, in the parts of the province where it's hard enough to represent anyway because communities are spread out um it it helped those people see what the change was going to do to them and i would say with eb proposing to reduce the number of standalone constituencies in the legislature by 30 to 35 so three dozen constituencies could be eliminated um i think and he's not telling us which ones I think you can see why people out there would like to know what's going to happen to election boundaries and to their communities. I would say, given what we know about how the, the main proportional system that New Democrats have backed in the past, MMP, given what we know about how that works elsewhere, many of the constituencies to be reduced or combined or eliminated, the seat count, in other words, the standalone seat count, that is going to impact the North and the interior uh, a great deal. Uh, People up there, I think, are entitled to know what's going to happen to their local representation. The way thing it's set up right now, they're not going to be told. And so when we talk about maps, we're really talking about what's going to happen to my local representation. If uh, you're in the Peace River country, there are two seats now. What if there are only one? There are three seats in and around Prince George. What if there's only one? There's two in Kamloops. What if there's only one? Uh, what if, uh, you know, in the southeast of the province, you end up with one or two constituencies and you have to cross a couple of mountain ranges to get to your MLA. These are huge impacts, and I can see why a political party like the Greens doesn't have any representation in that part of the province at all, thinks it's just dandy, but I can also see why people in that part of the province think this is a big issue. This is not a minor issue. Uh, Shannon, let's bring you in. You made an excellent point in the last segment about uh, don't underestimate people's ability to educate themselves, but is there an onus on the government to put forward as much information as possible, including uh, writing maps of the proposed systems that are at play here? I don't know that the maps are required. Um, certainly, uh, Ron makes excellent points about people having a right to sort of know what their representation is going to look like. Um, it's been pointed out that, you know, people could, can take a look at the systems, um, organizations can take a look at the systems and provide sort of samples that they think would happen under the various systems. There are some questions about, you know, sort of credibility there, but there is the option to get the information out there. I'd just like to talk on, on the representation issue, particularly for Northern Ridings. I spent a couple years up in Prince George, mm. and I think whether the maps are important to people is kind of going to depend on how they're approaching this referendum, whether they're really concerned about um, sort of 
how it affects them directly or whether they're considered concerned, sorry, about the system as a whole and having more proportional representation within the province and potentially within the ridings themselves. If you live in Prince George and you are an NDP voter or a Green voter or an independent voter or a conservative voter, um, you have not been represented by your choice of representative in a very long time. And that's true for many ridings throughout the province. Um, in the first-past-the-post system, it's sort of winner-take-all, and whether or not you, as a voter, then feel represented by your elected representative is, for some people, questionable. All right. That's, a, that's a, something that proportional representation could potentially address. Good point. Uh, Keith, uh, I know Gordon Campbell, the former premier, cited the lack of writing maps for the failure of a former uh, STV referendum. How important or not are they in your view? Keith, you there? Uh, okay. We lost Keith. <laughs> oh no, we've lost Keith. Uh, apologies on that. We'll try and reconnect with him. Um, let's uh, let's change it to the the other topic that's getting a lot of play on social media uh, is the five percent threshold that's been recommended by the attorney general to sort of block the extremist parties as people worry that a proportional representation system would open the door to them. Uh, Shannon, I'll start with you. Uh, you pointed out on Twitter that the BC Conservatives would be blocked from any seats under a PR system based on the results of the election last. It's true. Um, I can't remember exactly what their share of the vote was in the last election, but it did not meet the 5% threshold. Um, so, I mean, the B.C. Conservatives have kind of been in disarray in B.C. for for as long as I've been paying attention to politics. Um, but they are an established party. I don't know that many people would call them a fringe party, and they would not meet um, that standard. So... I mean, I guess things are likely to change under a proportional representation. People will have sort of a different understanding of how their representatives are going to be elected. So they may vote differently. They may be more inclined to give um, less sort of established parties a chance. But I do think that a 5% threshold is reasonable if your party can't attract 5% of voter support across the province, you know, do you really deserve to be representing people in the House? Okay, uh, Vaughn, let's get you in on that. Uh, is a 5% threshold enough to sort of quote-unquote block the crazies? Well, that's the idea behind it, and that's why a lot of countries that have these systems have a threshold. Uh, 5% is a common one. Well, I think in Israel it's like 1%, but 5% is a common one, and, and you do it to, you do it to block single-issue parties and extreme parties. Doesn't always work, I would add, uh, but that's the idea behind it. It does have consequences. One of them is that it's very hard for independents to get elected because you're running as an independent in one riding. Think of Vicki Huntington. She's not taking 5% of the vote province-wide. She took enough votes to win her riding. So that's one issue. Uh, the other one, of course, is that one of the slogans that the people who want proportional representation have been using, and this includes New Democrats and Greens, is we need a system that would make every vote count. Well, if you have a threshold, not every vote would count. The votes of parties we don't like, ones with less than 55% than of the vote, wouldn't count. So it does destroy one of the good slogans uh, for the PR advocates, but I think it does make sense given what is done elsewhere in the world, it is to discourage extreme and single-issue parties. All right. Uh, do we have Keith on the line or no? 
Okay, it sounds like we've lost Keith. So uh, apologies to Keith, uh, and uh, we're out of time for this particular segment, but uh, it's been a good discussion, and I think, uh, as always, uh, this every discussion deserves more time, and this one especially, because I think it's super complicated, uh, and it's going to be an interesting one going forward, and I, I'm sure that uh, we are not done talking about it. Vaughn, Shannon, and, uh, and Keith, thanks so much. Bye-bye, Shane. There we go. Shannon Waters, Vaughn Palmer, and Keith Baldry. And again, to my apologies to Keith. Somehow we lost him in a phone snafu there. We'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour, and we'll return with Premier John Horgan on Inside the Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Beautiful day here in Kamloops and a real pleasure to be joined on the phone by this province's premier, John Horgan. John, welcome. Morning, Shane. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good. Uh, let's talk about uh, the proportional representation thing first, and we'll divvy into some other topics after that. Uh, my Twitter feed, and I'm sure the Twitter feeds of other journalists around the province the last few days has been lighting up. Uh, there seems to be a real hunger here to kind of get some details. And, and first questions first, uh, considering all that's on the table, we got three processes. Two of them have never been tried before. There is a degree of complication here, and there is uh, a short period of time for people to vote. Is the November vote period, Premier, carved in stone, or is there a chance your government could move or tweak it? Well, I think that uh, I have more confidence in British Columbians to wade through the information and make an informed choice on whether they want to keep uh, the system we have of first-past-the-post that's produced only one real majority since uh, Confederation, where the majority of votes actually form the majority government. Every other government we formed has been with less than 50% of the vote. So, People can either say that they like that and they want to keep that, or they can uh, select uh, from three options that the Attorney General has put together based on the input that uh, almost 100,000 British Columbians offered him over the past couple of months. So we've got, it's what now, June 1st today. Uh, the vote uh, period will be in October, November. That's plenty of time for those who want to become informed. I know there will be active campaigns going, a pro and con. Uh, and that will, uh, I think, be plenty of time for people to make that choice and will either uh, lead to a change or it'll lead to uh, more of the same. Uh, I noticed in the legislature in the estimates yesterday, uh, in response to a question from Liberal MLA Michael Lee, you didn't entirely close the door when he asked you about potentially doing two referenda instead of one, you know, one on one question, holding a separate referendum on the other. You, you didn't entirely say no to that. Well, uh, the member Lee had some uh, thoughtful interventions. He had also, uh, when we debated the bill last fall, uh, he, uh, I thought, uh, had some useful and constructive comments to make. So did uh, Minister Eby. So uh, we've, uh, we're trying to incorporate uh, the views of all members if they're productive and, and, and useful. What, uh, what we have, Shane, is, is the, the Attorney General tabled his report on uh, Wednesday morning. You saw it at the same time I saw it. There was no uh, advanced look to the government, and Cabinet will now review uh, the report that's been tabled and will put in place uh, the structures to get to uh, a decision uh, this fall with a referendum uh, going to the people. And that, that will involve elections B.C. It'll be an independent arm's length. It won't be run by the NDP. It won't be run by the Liberals. It'll be run by elections B.C. And, and I'm, I'm confident that... Uh, that uh, we, Cabinet will look at uh, the debate we had uh, yesterday, uh, 
uh, all parties agreed to have an extra hour to discuss to just get on the table one last time people's views. Um, Minister Eby uh, talked about this at length during his estimates, and Michael Lee raised it with me, as, as did uh, the leader of the opposition. All right. Uh, I want to go back to the three uh, representation systems on the ballot. Again, two of those, uh, many people are saying, hey, they haven't been tried before. The third, rural-urban, uh, specifically, is, is seems to be kind of an invented system. I, I'm sure you read Rob Shaw's column, or one of the people your government tapped to get some advice on proportional representation. An expert in the subject said he's never heard of it before. Is there a concern? And, okay, let's say people say, okay, we want a new system, we want more representation, we're going to go PR, but is there a concern about throwing the province into what might be an experimental system? I, not at all. I mean, uh, by taking uh, risks, is, uh, that's how uh, investment uh, proceeds. Uh, people make choices, and sometimes they're good choices, sometimes they're bad choices. British Columbia, as you know, uh, full well, Shane, is a vast province with sparsely populated areas and densely populated areas. And if we're going to have a system that allows everyone's vote to boast, vote, vote <laughs> to count, we, uh, we should think outside the box. Uh, the mixed member system, which is one of the three options, is used very effectively in places like New Zealand and Germany, and, and there are a whole host of other systems around the world. The STB, pure STB, was uh, proposed to the public twice in the past and rejected both times, so it didn't seem to make a lot of sense to have that as one of the options. So uh, based on the input that the Attorney General received based on a symposium of experts uh, who started to think, well, what about if we tried this and that and the other? Uh, we came up with, or, or Mr. Minister Eby came up with the suggestions that he did. And as I said yesterday in debate, uh, we're going to look at uh, the input that we've seen. Uh, we're going to look at the report uh, that was tabled, and we'll make a decision very shortly. And Elections BC will put the question out to the public, and, and they'll decide uh, whether it's a good idea or a bad one. And you and I and others may have differences of opinion on it, uh, Shane, but at the end of the day, why I'm pleased with where we're going is that it's not a just choice for me and you to make or others to make. It's a choice for the public to make. And I'm confident that British Columbians will look at this thoughtfully and, uh, and they'll cast their ballots uh, either for or against a change. And then they'll rank what uh, of the options available, which they think is the best one. All right. Uh, 34 bills passed in the legislature uh, that had just concluded yesterday. Uh, among them, a lot of heavyweight bills. Uh, one in particular, well, a few in particular, are going to still have sort of some tantalizing strings to, to chase down in, in probably future sittings. One of the big ones is, is the marijuana legislation bill, which in a lot of ways uh, is on the dance floor awaiting a federal partner. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of nuances from the federal legislation that could impact the provincial legislation. Uh, John, as this thing unfolds, one of the biggest policy changes this country's ever endured. How do you see it rolling out, and do you have any concerns on any particular front? Well, I, I have a, a host of concerns, and I think British Columbians do as well, uh, but we'll just have to see how it goes. I, I think, and I, you, uh, your listeners will probably agree, that the public has been way ahead of policymakers on the legalization of cannabis for a long time, uh, and no one is under any illusion that uh, people aren't smoking marijuana right now as we're talking on the radio program. I don't know uh, uh, about you, but my sense... <laughs> I'm not currently smoking marijuana, just saying. <laughs> nor, nor am I. But there may well be... I, I'm fairly confident there are people across British Columbia smoking marijuana right now. And uh, so there are going to be bumps along the way. I was at a, a Western Premier's Conference meeting in Yellowknife last week, and, and the Premier of Manitoba, Brian Pallister, uh, very concerned that uh, 
we just don't know if we're buying a pig in a poke when it comes to enforcement of uh, impaired driving uh, regulations. Uh, how are we going to, how are law enforcement officials uh, going to address this if we don't have right now, and we don't, uh, we haven't locked down what mechanisms we're, are we going to use to determine uh, intoxication or impairment, and how are we going to enforce these things? That all falls to the provinces to deal with. And so Manitoba is very concerned about that. They ha- also are concerned about the fact that the, there's a moving target from the federal government about when there's going to be implementation. So uh, there are going to be growing pains along the way. Uh, I, I uh, joked, as you, you remember, in a, uh, a uh, scrum some weeks ago about Betty and Souk. Uh, this is a fictitious person, just for your listeners. Uh, but people are buying marijuana uh, from illegal outlets right now. There's uh, legal or, or approved dispensaries in, in cities around the province, and there are other cities that don't want anything to do with it, uh, beyond uh, allowing, um, uh, obviously, uh, B.C. liquor stores to, uh, to sell uh, the product when, uh, when the legalization uh, comes into play. So there's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of bumps along the way, and I think I, I would ask the public, uh, Shane, through you, to be patient as we try and figure this out, but it's a massive change. And uh, some people are going to be unhappy about it, and others are saying about time. All right. Uh, Premier, just one more topic to throw out because we're almost out of time, unfortunately. But uh, Trans Mountain's a big issue, uh, continues to be a big issue, has been a big issue. Of course, huge news uh, earlier this week. But uh, Trans Mountain, as we speak, is going to court. They're looking for a tougher injunction order to deal with protesters. I'm, I'm curious what, A, you think of that, and B, are you worried about the tactics of some of the groups involved that oppose the pipeline? Well, I am... Uh, I am uh I guess, relieved that the federal government has done something. I was called back to Ottawa a month and a half ago by the Prime Minister, and, and uh, I told him what I've said to you and others for the past 10 months, that British Columbia, the government of British Columbia, is seeking uh, some clarity on what our jurisdiction is if there's a, a catastrophic spill, and, and are we going to be prepared, uh, whether through uh, provincial regulation or federal uh, preparedness, to address a catastrophic spill, and, and I've not yet been satisfied that that's the case. Uh, the Prime Minister assures me uh, as early as this week now that um, the federal government is taking over the project uh, that we'll continue to work on the Ocean Protection Plan uh, to fill any gaps there might be in the science about how we deal with diluted bitumen if it does uh, uh, get out of the pipe or get out of the boat and get into the natural environment. And, and that's what we've been doing from the get-go, uh, Shane, is try to make sure that we have every tool available to protect British Columbia's economy and environment. Uh, on the, uh, the uh, tactics of those who uh, continue to oppose the project, my appeal to them is, is to live within the law. Uh, civil disobedience is a fundamental principle in our country, uh, and people need to respect that. But they also need to respect the law, and uh, if, uh, if people get beyond that, then uh, regrettably the law enforcement will have to step in. Uh, the proponents, Kinder Morgan today, the federal government in the days ahead, uh, will be responsible for that, uh, uh, putting forward to the courts what they believe is an appropriate uh, uh, space between civil disobedience and the project. But uh, it's not just in the Lower Mainland, as you know, uh, cold water in, in, in your neighborhood, uh, not pleased with uh, the pipe coming through their territory and risking their aquifer. Uh, the Upper Nicola First Nation uh, spoke to me directly when I was there uh, a few months ago about their concerns. So there's a lot of Indigenous questions remaining to be answered. Uh, I raised that with uh, the Prime Minister as well, and he's not oblivious to that. And uh, I know they're going to be working as hard as they can 
uh, to smooth uh, smooth this over and see if they can uh, get some success. All right. Well, we're out of time, and I was uh, hoping to get in my solo Star Wars story question, but I'll leave that for another day. I haven't gone yet. <laughs> well, I can tell you, the standalones are doing better than the two parts of the trilogy I've seen so far, so I think you'll enjoy it. Well, Rogue, Rogue One's my favorite, mm. car, so... So this, uh, I look forward to seeing Solo over the weekend. All right, sounds good. Uh, Premier, uh, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Okay, Shane. Take care. All right. Premier John Horgan on Inside Politics. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll talk to journalism professor Sean Holman. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone by the Associate Professor of Journalism at Mount Royal University in nearby Calgary, Sean Holman. Of course, BC Politics will know him as the man behind Public Eye Online. Sean, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you back, man. It's been too long. Absolutely. Uh, listen, I wanted to get you on because I am really curious what your take is as we embark on this proportional representation debate. I know that you're deeply invested in uh, this country's democracy uh, and definitely this province's as well as the one you're in. Uh, and you did uh, back in 2013 have that excellent uh, documentary whipped the secret world of party discipline. If anyone hasn't seen it, they should definitely look it up. It's well worth it. Uh, so I'm curious from you, do you do you see any one system first past the post versus proportional representation sort of giving more leeway, more power to both voters and MLAs or, or no? Um, I do think a change in the voting system would give more power to voters. It would hopefully make the legislature more representative uh, of what uh, voters want to see in the legislature, that it would make it more diverse. As to whether or not it will address the issue of party discipline, that's the situation where all of the MLAs who belong to a particular political party vote together, that's a little bit less certain. The problem with our political system is that we have cabinet secrecy and caucus secrecy, cabinet confidentiality and caucus confidentiality. So that means all the decisions that happen within these bodies, so all the cabinet ministers getting together or all the members of a particular political party getting together, uh, happen in secret. And that's where they actually have an opportunity to voice what their real opinions are. And outside of those forums, they have to toe the party line and they have to vote the party line. So voters don't really get to have an understanding about where their individual representatives stand on any given particular issue. Now, whether or not changing the voting system will change that is an open question. You might hope that by changing the voting system, it might change the makeup of the legislature. It might result in perhaps more minority governments, which then give individual MLAs more power and, as a result, more freedom perhaps to vote their voice their opinions but again that's kind of an open question I'm curious, uh, you uh, being in Calgary for the last few years are no stranger to politics that can be extremely divisive at times, as has plagued us nationally as well. Uh, as we embark on this proportional representation uh, debate, Sean, how do you do it 
kind of without some of the hysterical frenzy that has so earmarked uh, the politics, not only in BC, but in your province, across Canada, to our neighbours in the south. Uh, how do you get around that and have an adult debate? Um, I think that's really one of the problems of our current political age, um, is that everything has become so emotive. You only need to look at social media to see how uh, that has influenced the debate and informed the debate. For example, on Facebook, we are only given emotional options, really, when it comes to responding to someone else's Facebook post. You can either like it, feel sad by it, feel angry about it, feel wowed by it, or love it. Very binary choices, really. Um, So I think what we really need to be thinking about from a long-term standpoint when it comes to political debates, not just the referendum debate that BC is going to be having, but political debates in general, is we need to have more of a priority in the educational system as well as society as a whole in terms of how to have rational discussions and empathetic discussions. Those are the two things that are really missing in our political debate and how to have that within a civic context. That's what we really need to be thinking about as a society. And I think if you sort of take a look at all the various different challenges that we are dealing with as a culture, as a world, a lot of those could be solved if we were having those kind of discussions. Uh, you're a man who uh, champions the flow of information in the democratic context. I don't know to what degree you've kind of steeped yourself in what David Eby unrolled uh, on Wednesday of this week as far as a proportional representation referendum here, but I'm curious from an information perspective if you can comment on it. Do you see this process as being one that empowers voters? Do you have concerns? Um, I like the way in which the referendum question is structured um, in that it's sort of a two-step process. Do you support proportional representation? Do you support first-past-the-post? And then get into the niceties of what particular political system within the proportional representation context would you back? Um, But that being said, um, given the overall lack of civic education in British Columbia as well as Canada at large, um, the options that are being presented to British Columbians seem structured in a bit of a complex way. Um, I would hope that there would be an educational effort undertaken, a comprehensive educational effort undertaken to sort of go over uh, what those various different options uh, look like. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not necessarily confident that even such an effort will, will end up making a difference. Um, so I think it points to, again, the need for more civic education so voters really have an opportunity to make informed choices about these kinds of issues. Um, but I worry that it will leave 
um, opportunities for people who are opposed to proportional representation to fear monger and also say, well, these systems are way too complicated, let's just stick with first past the post, which is how the opponents of proportional representation have won uh, all the previous referendums, which is kind of a sad commentary. Um, on our society that the argument you're too dumb to understand this uh, would actually work, but there it is. Yeah, or you throw out the you know a couple countries where it's a disaster as opposed to other countries where it works. I, I, uh, my concern is, is, is yeah. we need to treat it like a legitimate democratic process, but we need to have a discussion about whether one is better for us than the other. That's right. I mean, you know, that, that's sort of how SPV was defeated, right? Um, you know, the proponents of first past the post, keeping things as a status quo, uh, basically said, look, this system is too complex, let's sit with one that's simple. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really sad that that was effective, but it also speaks to the weakness of the pro-STV forces who have spent so much time focusing on the benefits of um, PR uh, as opposed to hammering on the negatives of our current first-past-the-post system. Yeah. Um, they kind of fall into the trap, right, of talking about the benefits of PR as opposed to doing what you need to do in politics, which is attack the other side. And there's mm. a lot to attack when it comes to first-past-the-post. Mm. Uh, Sean, we've hit the top of the hour. Always a pleasure chatting. Uh, I never feel like we have enough time, but thanks for coming on, and we'll get you back on again soon. My pleasure, Shane. And that's Associate Professor of Journalism at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Sean Holman. We'll take a quick break here on Radio NL. We'll be right back with our final segment, a conversation with BCTF President Glenn Hansman, right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. From both sides of the floor, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. A little podcast bonus this morning. BCTF President Glenn Hansman joins us. Glenn, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, good to have you on. Always good to talk to you. Uh, listen, we're, uh, we're already looking forward to the next school year. Uh, of course, this first year was the first one under the class size and composition rules. Uh, lots of good things happened, and there were some concerns uh, specifically uh, the big one seemed to be around teacher hirings uh, and then the effect that, of course, all of the hiring of teachers had on the teachers on call list, uh, which had a lot of problems. And we've ironed some of those out in fairness. But uh, it sounds like uh, there's still some concerns there as you look ahead to September. What's going on on that front? Because I was under the impression that we were sort of getting close to being where we needed to be. There's, there's still concern, especially with the number of teachers on call that are available in school districts around the province. And also, it's retirement season, and so we need to replace the teachers who are retiring. And enrollment still increasing in school districts, which is good, but that means there's going to be more classes and therefore more teachers, too, that we need. And so all the accumulated issues, all the things that we were concerned about this time last year going into the current school year are, are still there in terms of school districts needing to do more recruitment. There are not being enough teachers in BC. And what are we going to do about that? And so we were you know, hoping that the current government would be taking a more of a hands-on role in terms of assisting school districts with this and enabling them to create more incentives to attract people from out of province. That hasn't really occurred all that much. And so there's still a long way to go. And, and uh, we'd like the Minister of Education and the powers that be to enact some more um, things in order to address this problem. 
memory serves, Rob Fleming stood up in the House not that long ago and hailed the amount of teacher hirings. I think uh, I can't remember the exact number, but if memory serves, something around 80-something percent is what he cited as far as how far we are to where we need to be. Uh, if, if we're at 80-something percent, Glenn, and, and you're raising the alarm bells that you're raising, it, it doesn't sound like we're really anywhere near that close. Well, it may it may be around that number, it may be even higher, but it's it's the remaining portion that's what we're concerned about. I mean, just in terms of practical fact, I mean, kids are coming to school on day to day day to day basis. It's not like you could tell a grade four class you're not coming to school today because there's no teacher. But what's occurring is that many school districts around the province, Kamloops included, don't have enough teachers on call to go around because people who were doing that work last year have been hired to those classroom positions. And so if somebody's sick or they're absent for another reason, many school districts simply don't have enough bodies to replace those individuals. And so what typically happens is that the special ed teacher or the ESL teacher or the counselor or somebody else gets redeployed and sent in to fill in during that day. And what that means for the students is that the small group and one-on-one support that they're supposed to be getting, and we're talking mostly students with special needs, gets canceled. Um, And so those kids have to bear a disproportionate burden for the school districts, the adults' um, problem in terms of replacing people, and also it's um, treating special education services as a dispensable commodity, commodity, which is not right. I mean, those children are entitled to those accommodations. The government and teachers and everyone know how important those things are. And so for that to be happening continuously is not a problem. And we've also had, in many school districts around the province, an increasing number of non-certified people being used. Uh, there were news stories earlier this school year about the school district um, that has Armstrong and Sam and Arm in it, uh, utilizing people with university degrees, but not teaching degrees um, as substitute teachers. We have the Quinnell School District, which has hired uh, about nine people without a teaching certificate to be regular classroom teachers. That's a problem, too. And we just have the ongoing disruptions, and, and this needs to be tended to. And so we were really happy last fall when Mr. Fleming put in place a task force to look at the immediate challenges. That task force issued its report to him on um, early December, and only some of the recommendations have actually been acted upon. And the, the ones that have been acted upon are the creation of some additional teacher education program spots, but the people who are going to be going into those spots and getting trained, they won't be coming into the system until a couple of school years down the road. So there still haven't been any concrete steps taken that have really meaningfully addressed the challenge this year and aren't going to set things up very well for next school year. Uh, Before I get into what those concrete steps should be and what you want to see happen, I do want to ask you if you've heard about any districts uh, that have put up roadblocks in the hiring of teachers. I have been in contact uh, with at least one teacher here in Kamloops who says that she has all her certification and and yet uh, for some reason can't get hired uh, and she's not the only one. Are are you hearing that that some of the school districts are are playing games there at all or, or, or no? Uh, we have, and that's part of the reason why we filed a provincial grievance on this, because we do have some of our collective agreements that do talk about the, re- the responsibility of school districts to replace people when they're absent. And so where we're able to grieve, uh, we've done that. There's the, you know, sort of the broader issue, whether there's collective agreement language or not, you know, just the 
the responsibility of school districts to make sure they have enough people and to do their due diligence and hire um, um, whoever they can. This is not like it was five years ago where there were a whole bunch of teachers and few jobs. Now it's the opposite situation. There are hardly any teachers and a whole bunch of jobs. And so school districts, you know, perhaps in the past could have been a lot choosier. We have been hearing anecdotally stories of uh, applying to School District X and School District Y. It's the first one they never hear back from, or it takes weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, meanwhile, they get um, snatched up by a neighboring school district. And so there's some inconsistent practice that we're, you know, scratching our heads and wondering about. And then, you know, stories of people who perhaps have recently retired are willing to do part-time work as a TTOC and uh, not being taken up on their offer, or uh, people like the individual you've cited who've got a teaching certificate, have really good recommendations, and nobody phones them back. And so we're wondering what's going on, especially when school districts are saying, we don't have enough people, we can't fill these absences. Well, uh, we have some questions about that. So we are pursuing that through the, the grievance process while we can. Um, and in the meantime, we're still con- uh, encouraging the province to move ahead with the other recommendations that the task force um, identified, as well as other things that we as the BCTF uh, were talking about, even with the previous government, when uh, Mike Bernie was the Minister of Education, and uh, and we had identified this you know, this possibility that this school year that we would be short. And so given affordability issues and given how poorly BC teachers are paid for starting salaries compared to other provinces, what more things can we do around paying off student loans, helping people out with housing, paying all their moving expenses that they're coming from different parts of the country, those sorts of things. Uh, you've raised those issues with me before. You've obviously tabled them to the minister. Uh, to what degree are they being utilized, addressed, or or put out there as an option? Well, the degree to which they're being utilized is, uh, you know, really just um, limited by what the previous government put in place. And so Mike Bernier, when he was minister, set aside last spring $2 million for about a quarter of the school districts, mostly rural and remote ones, to be able to access this school year, to be able to do some of those kind of one-off payment of things. Like like somebody rents a U-Haul, brings all their furniture and their family from Thunder Bay, Ontario, the school district is able to reimburse some of those expenses if there's receipts. But that's a very limited pool of money. It was only for the school year and only for some school districts. And so the task force, when it issued its report in December, recommended that a similar fund be available for the next several school years, that it be a larger fund and it be accessible to all school districts. Um, Because, you know, certainly Kamloops has recruitment challenges, the lower mainland school districts do, Um, the Victoria, Souk, Sanit region also does as well. And so, you know, um, when you're trying to entice people to come west of the Rockies from other provinces and they've got student loans, you need to provide them with the reassurance that you could help them out with some rent um, or you can help them with their moving expenses. And right now that's just limited to some school districts and only this year. So that needs to be fixed. The student loan forgiveness piece seems like a no-brainer. It's utilized in health. It's utilized in some other sectors. There's an existing program. It just needs to be expanded. So education is... um, included in the existing program. And again, it's, uh, you know, uh, it could be structured in such a way that it's not just for people who are coming out for six months or a year to BBC. It could be set up in such a way that if you commit to stay for five or six years, will help pay down things. And then hopefully the person will stay in the long term. I mean, the reality is if you're from another province and you've accumulated a lot of student debt, we're not going to attract enough people like that from out of BC. 
um, when they have better paid job opportunities in other parts of Canada. And, and that's just a practicable, tangible thing that can be done. It's been recommended by the task force, and nothing's happened. It's been six months um, since that task force issued its reports, and we do not want to be going into another school year replicating the same problems as this year. And then you add the complications. Uh, there's areas of the province that may not be so desirable for some people. Uh, you have uh, a desirable area of the province in the lower mainland, which is uh, horrendously unaffordable, which presents its own challenges. Uh, how do you deal with that? How do you get teachers in some of those far-flung school districts? And how do you deal with teachers who, uh, you know, Vancouver School District obviously has some problems, uh, and people go to go down to any one of those lower mainland school districts and look at the cost of living and go, whoa, there's no way. Yes, and also there's nowhere to rent anyway, even if I did want to come here. Um, you know, the new teachers coming out of the teacher ed programs in other provinces might not have kids yet. They might be, and you'll have a spouse, be thinking about starting a family, and then when you factor that into, um, you know, how am I going to afford a one-bedroom apartment, let alone a two-bedroom uh, apartment in the Vancouver region in order to house <laughs> children a couple of years down the road. That, those are things that are, are causing, you know, the existing professionals, not just in education, but in law, health care, um, all sorts of other sectors to leave the city. And so the Vancouver School District, uh, I know they are trying to hire as many people uh, that they can, but it, we're at the point now where people are leaving at the same pace that they're able to hire. And we have retirements on top of that now that it's springtime and then a bunch of other things like that. And uh, that's not unique to Vancouver. You know, if you're looking at a community like Nelson, smaller, but because of the number of homes that are being bought up by people in Alberta for, you know, vacation homes and everything like that, there isn't anywhere to rent. Uh, and where somebody can find a rental, it's incredibly expensive compared to other markets. And so that makes it challenging for school districts, even in some of the um, areas outside of the lower mainland, to get people to stay. Uh, I have met um, newer teachers in, in places like Atlin and Dee's Lake and everything that came from Toronto with their families. And, you know, hopefully they'll stick it out for, for several years. But we know in a lot of those places there's a high turnover. And that's really hard on the, the student and parent community, too, because um, there's a constant revolving door of teachers coming through their schools as people come to the province and then um, uh, see that there's jobs elsewhere and then don't stay in the community that they land in. And so I know some school districts are looking at sort of similar communities. So rather than just recruiting from Toronto and trying to convince somebody to come to Fort St. John, looking at places like Lakehead University or looking at um, uh, teacher education programs in similar-sized communities in other parts of Canada, but we'd like BC to think about growing more teachers within the province. And so we were happy that last spring Minister Fleming announced 120 spots, um, you know, to add to the t existing teacher ed programs and try some satellite programs. But we need more of those. And even if they are established tomorrow, those teachers won't be graduating until a couple of years down the road. And so what are we doing about the problem now? Okay. Uh, before we move on to any other topics here, Glenn, real quick, uh, the, I want to go back to the provincial grievance on the teacher shortage. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, it's going to arbitration. How will that process unfold? And, and sort of what do you hope the, the end result of it is? Well, that situation is looking at language where collective agreements say somebody does have to be replaced, and uh, we're concerned that some school districts aren't um, taking up prospective candidates who are out there um, and turning away people 
that they more than they should and not acting on um, calling people back ASAP. And so we're, we're hoping that the outcome of this will, will cause some school districts to be a bit more proactive, um, but also will signal to the province that they need to do more to assist school districts as well. And so um, that grievance is continuing, um, but the whole broader picture on recruitment and retention period isn't contingent on this. It, it really does require the province of British Columbia to work hand-in-hand hand with school districts to coordinate a provincial plan to make sure this is done. You know, French immersion is a huge challenge because there's a shortage in every province, including Quebec, and so just simply poaching teachers from other provinces isn't going to solve the problem entirely, but... Um, you know, the grievance is one part of the puzzle to help move things forward, and the political lobbying is another. And having more parent voices out there, you know, being pretty firm that, no, my child with special needs should not have their program disrupted one day more this school year and shouldn't have it happen at all next school year. Yeah, amen to that. Okay, uh, Glenn, a couple quick questions and other topics to, to throw at you here. Um, the Caribou Chukotin School District uh, had a bit of a situation to deal with. Uh, last Friday, we had Diane Turner's report on what seems to be a very troubled situation. Uh, after reading that, I'm left with the impression the district is, and the, the word I want to use is not very radio-friendly, so let's just say it's a bit of a mess there. Uh, what did you get out of the report? It is a bit of a mess. Uh, we were very happy that Minister Fleming did send Diane Turner in there to have a look into what was going on. Um, the issues that were identified transcend the school year. Some of them have been persistent for a long time. Uh, our local um, and we, the BCTF provincially, have been flagging the school district, uh, sort of singling it out for a, a particularly toxic workplace environment for our members. And I know the BC Principals and Vice Principals Association have also expressed concerns about the experience of their members working in that school district too. And so there needs to be some things done. And um, we weren't particularly impressed with the school district's response um, at the end of last week after Diane Turner's report came out. And so I was very happy to find out that um, Minister Rob Fleming had authorized a special advisor to go in. It's not um, um, the final lever that could be pulled in the situation. It's sort of uh, you know, the next step um, in escalating a response. And hopefully the school district will self-correct. It is going to be important that the whole school community there, our local inclusive, um, work together to ameliorate the situation. Um, but what has been carrying on in that school district cannot continue. It's not good for um, anyone working in that school district. And ultimately, that also means that it's not good for the students that are in the schools. Because if our members and the members of the B, uh, BC PPPA are dealing with uh, toxic workplaces and a school district that's not supportive, then that translates into um, uh, fewer um, good learning environments for students. And, and so there are many reasons why this needs to be turned around, and we're really thankful that Minister Fleming is uh, taking this to the next level, um, especially given the school district's um, very unfortunate, unfortunate response at the end of last week. Okay, uh, final question now. Is there, is there sort of a, a timeline you want to see things get back to normal there? I mean, can things wait for another school year? Do you want to see it ship-shape by September? I mean, ideally, how do you want to see that problem addressed from a timing perspective? Ideally, you know, by the time we get into the first month or two of the next school year, there needs to be a plan and there needs to be a noticeable change. I mean, if a special advisor is going in and the school district um, rebuffs 
um, whatever that person is doing, uh, you know, that signals that the problem is going to continue. Uh, hopefully that's not the case, though. So I'm optimistic about it. Uh, hopefully they can self-correct and change the course of the school district and uh, make sure that some of the chronic persistent problems are finally dealt with and addressed. But um, if they're not willing to do that or indicate that they're not willing to do that or continuing to deny that there's a problem, then perhaps uh, more a more serious intervention needs to occur. I hope that's not the case. You know, nobody wants to see a school board fired and uh, and um, the province take over a school district, but in some cases, um, it's necessary, as it was in the um, uh, North Okanagan Shushwap School District two years ago. All right, fair enough. Uh, last question to throw at you, and it's just sort of looking ahead. Uh, last time I touched base on the uh, on the potential bargaining topic, uh, you were hopeful to hopefully get to the table as early as perhaps this fall, uh, get a deal done in a far more amicable manner than it <laughs> than it just done in in previous bargaining sessions. So, uh, as far as where you're standing right now, Glenn, uh, how are we shaping up on the bargaining front? Well, what you just said summarizes our position you know, very well. We're keen to start as soon as possible. Our collective agreement expires at the end of June next school year, and we want to replicate what happened in 2006 when we were able to reach a deal, a freely negotiated deal, uh, at the table before the current one expired. It is possible, and we've had some good conversations with um, Minister James, who's responsible for public sector bargaining, and uh, other folks too in government around uh, what we're hoping to see happen. Not, you know, not the content of proposals or anything like that, but just, you know, process and structurally get started early. Um, try to enable or enable mechanisms to help resolve disputes at our local tables, and um, and putting rolling up our sleeves and putting all of our energy into trying to get a deal before the end of June. Uh, you know, BCGU. Uh, already has their bargaining well underway. Um, QP is probably going to be starting soon in K to 12, and uh, we'd like to get going early too. You know, trustee elections are there in the mix too, and they do have a voice in what happens in collective bargaining for teachers. But we don't think that should hold up getting started. Normally, we would commence three months before the collective agreement expires, so that would be March of next year. But we'd like to start December 1st at the latest. And what kind of uh, what sort of pay raises are you hunting for here, Glenn? Well, we don't have a number yet. We are uh, a method provincially for setting objectives is to solicit uh, resolutions from all of our locals, and then we'll be formally setting objectives around Halloween, and then you know hopefully we get started right away. But um, given the affordability problem and given the net zero mandates that the last two rounds of bargaining were under, we are significantly high uh, behind um, all other teachers in Canada, and so BC and Quebec have the worst starting salaries in Canada, uh, about $20,000 less than what a starting teacher would receive in Alberta or Ontario. And uh, whether that all gets addressed in one swoop or if it's staged uh, remains to be seen. But those are conversations that we have have to be able to have a mature conversation about those things because as this teacher shortage problem has shown, um, the fact that people aren't being paid properly is a major hindrance to who school districts are able to hire and how many people school districts are able to hire. And we're not the only ones. This is a problem across the public sector when you take similar jobs and compare to what those jobs would earn in other provinces. BC is a completely different situation and it needs to be fixed. It's also a problem in many private sector jobs. If you look at what's happening in uh, in the retail and uh, restaurants, 
industry and the challenges that employers are having trying to recruit enough people and retain them, um, especially seasonal workers, given what can be um, what can be earned in other provinces. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people in BC who are having a hard time getting by, given the cost of living and given that their salaries haven't uh, kept up with uh, the reality of paying bills. Okay, last question. Uh, salaries aside, what's the priority, the next uh, biggest priority for you in bargaining? Uh, well, I, I would say, and not pre- presupposing what our bargaining conference will do, but you know, the fact that the class size and class composition language that has been returned to us, it's language that the bulk of it um, hasn't changed since 1993. And so when the language was unconstitutionally legislated away back in 2002, we were in the middle of bargaining and we were trying to fix that language, fill in some holes, update it, modernize it. And uh, presumably, if it had never been taken away, it would have continued to have evolved through subsequent rounds of uh, collective bargaining. And so um, what we're dealing with um, is um, language that has remained frozen in time for about a quarter century, um, other than a few small pieces from 98. And so um, there's a lot of uh, holes to be filled. We have several locals that don't have any class size language from grades 4 through 12, and that's a problem because then we have inequitable services for students around the province. And we have a lot of locals that don't have any class composition language. And that language is meant to drive services into schools, in particular for students, uh, for students with special needs. And so I expect that that is going to be a, uh, a big part of the conversations at the bargaining table because I, I expect that the employer is also interested in, in addressing the fact that we have language that has not changed in about 25 years. All right, perfect. Glenn, you've been generous with your time. Always good to chat. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. That's it for today's Inside Politics. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next Friday. 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft Cash Creek. From CHNL in Kamloops, this is Radio NL 610 AM. Local News Now.